0: You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right, how's everybody doing? All right, it's good to see all of you. Uh, We're going to get started in just a minute. Um, Welcome to... uh, week four already of Ruth. Feels like it just started, and I'm kind of like, what are we going to do after week five? So we're going to figure something out. Um, If you guys haven't been here before, or if you've been here maybe just once or twice, um, at any point during the evening, feel free to get some refreshments, or if you need to find the restroom, um, it's downstairs, and the hallway that goes that way, and you'll find it. (laughs) If not... uh, I don't know, ask Pastor Riz or something to show you. So, um, yeah, it's good to have you all with us. If Does anybody need the handout? Hopefully not many, because we only have two. But does anybody need one that doesn't have one? So it has the text. Okay, so over here, we might have three. One is slightly used. There's, I think this gentleman over here needs one. Could you make, I think, like two maybe? Oh. Gabby, yeah, do we need one more? All right. I mean, I don't know. Okay. All right. The Lord provides, yes. Just enough. I heard this really terrible joke one time, and somebody was like, my fa- it's not really a joke, but someone was like, my favorite name for a God is jehovah Nickatime because he always comes through in the nick of time. I don't know why I thought about that. It's awful, I know. All right. I'm awful at telling jokes, so don't, that's, that's, that's all I got. All right, well, um, thanks, you guys, for coming to our Reality Honolulu, Reality Honolulu Equip class uh, on the book of Ruth. This is week four of uh, five weeks, and so this week we are going to be getting into um, chapter three. And uh, if you haven't been with us before, we are taking you guys through the book of Ruth using um, seven steps of Bible study. And so what we do each week is we just kind of work our way through each of those seven steps. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with uh, step number one, uh, which is pray. And so this is when we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us, in our study of the text. And so I'm just going to pray uh, before we get started. Father, we just thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you that uh, your spirit is here with us. And so we just submit ourselves to you and ask that you would speak to us uh, through this amazing story. Um, Lord, and lead us as we, as we read the text, as we observe the text, God, and as we uh, learn how to apply it to our lives, God, we just ask that um, yeah, you would just lead us and that we would be uh, able to um, practice the things that you're you're asking us to practice um, as we leave here. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so that is step number one. Step number two is read. And we are going to, normally we would say, read through the book all the way from beginning to end. We did that week number one. And so for this week, uh, we're just going to read through uh, chapter three. So if you, I think it's page six in your handout um, and we're using the ESV, um, not because it's better than any other translation. It's just the one I use most frequently, so that's what I printed. Um, but it helps if we all use the same translation, especially when we're talking about little details, just so that we can all know where and what you're talking about. So if you have your Bible, you can re- follow along in your Bible. If it's a different translation, that's no big deal. Uh, but I will uh, start, and um, we'll read through chapter three together. Then Naomi her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it in on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That's Ruth chapter 2. What do you guys think? (laughs) I like that reaction. Wow. Rated (laughs) Rated R Yeah, what in the world is happening? Yeah, it's a pretty, it sounds pretty scandalous, right? It's a very interesting uh, portion of your Bible, right? Sometimes we're not really quite sure what to do with stuff like this, but uh, we're going to unpack this tonight, and I think that uh, you'll see kind of what's actually happening here, and it's kind of a fun uh, passage to unpack. But yeah, that's kind of my reaction is, wow. Um, So that is read. Again, we encourage you guys, if you're about to study a book, Read it all the way through from beginning to end. Um, And if you're just going to read through uh, or study a passage, find the context, whether it's a paragraph, read through all of it before you go back verse by verse. That helps you uh, understand and uh, be able to appreciate the context, um, and context is really important for um, our interpretation. Okay, so let's move on to step number three, which is uh, genre. And so this is when we learn about the ancient literary styles used by the biblical authors. And um, I talked a little bit more in detail in week number one, but if you have your, um, what do you call it, handout? Yeah, your Ruth, let's just call it handout. Uh, if you turn to page eight, I want to ask you guys just a few questions, um, and the information is in there. But can anybody tell me who's, who's been here, was here in week number one, what is the, the main genre in the book of Ruth? Yeah, it's narrative. It's historical narrative. Um, 43% of your Bible is historical narrative, which is a story. Uh, do you remember what specific subtype of narrative it is? Yeah, it's a comedy, which begins in tragedy, but will kind of reverse itself in the end and end up in uh, joy or celebration. And if you've read through the book of Ruth, you can kind of see how that arc happens. Um, at the end of chapter 4, what other genre do we find? Do you remember? Yeah, it's a list of names or uh, genealogy. And so that's actually a little bit different than historical narrative. And so we're going to talk about why that's important to know next week. But I just want to point that out that just because the, the main portion of the book is one Genre, there could be other genre forms within that. So it's good for us just to be able to identify it because we're going to read those each a little bit differently. Um, when we are reading historical narrative specifically, what are some of the things that we're going to be looking for? I kind of mentioned a few different elements of historical narrative. Yeah, location, setting, characters, yeah, the plot, the conflict, the tension, the resolution. Yeah, those are, those are really important things to keep in mind as you're reading, and I'm going to have you identify those things in a little bit in chapter 3. In light of that, do you guys remember, what is the main plot in the book of Ruth? What is the book of Ruth all about? Do you remember, it's the first five verses of chapter 1. Yeah, redemption of Naomi, right? So the story starts off with this tragedy centered around Naomi where she loses everything. And we don't have time to review all of the the patriarchal culture stuff, but it's in there. We talked about it a little bit um, two weeks ago. And so Naomi is pretty much destitute and pretty much without hope at this point. The main character in the book of Ruth is actually Naomi, so although you're not going to necessarily see her all that much, she is the main character, and she is the point of which the story is, is kind of working towards its resolution. But within each chapter, there's almost like a little subplot, and so we're going to try to identify uh, that in just a minute. All right, so that has to do with genre. Does anybody have any questions before I move on to step number four, before and with regards to that? <clears throat> All right, so now we're going to move on to uh, step number four, which is history. So this is when we're going to discover the cultural and historical setting of the Bible. Um, the Bible is a really old book, and the culture that we read about in the book of Ruth is not very similar to ours. Um, the story takes place about 3,000 years ago in a very different time and culture than ours, and so it's important for us to to understand some of the cultural elements that are happening, and that helps us to understand maybe why Ruth does this, or why Naomi does that, or why Boaz says that, that initially might be a little bit bizarre to us. And so this is where we're bridging this this big cultural gap in order to understand the culture and uh, the setting of the biblical text. So I want to ask you guys a question, and again, this information is on pages 8 through 10, but where, in, in light of the biblical narrative, where does the story of Ruth take place? During what time period? During the time period of the Judges. And if you were uh, with us, I can't remember if this was the first week or the third week, is that a happy face or a sad face? Yeah, major sad face. The time period of the Judges is a real downer. Um, I encourage you to go and, and read it, and um, you'll, kinda, you'll get to see a little bit more of that. And the author tells us repeatedly that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And it turned out to be quite a disaster. And so for the nation of Israel, during the time period of Ruth, everybody around them is, uh, is not behaving very well. They're not being very faithful to God and to his law. And so that's why when we see the book of Ruth, and we see Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, there's a stark contrast and so it's important for us to understand when that's happening because it brings these characters to life and makes us appreciate them even more, right? They're awesome characters, but in light of what's happening around them, uh, it's even more so. In, in this book, it tells us that Ruth is of what uh, nation? What people group is Ruth? Moabite. She's a Moabite. And is Moabite a happy face or a sad face for an Israelite? They the yeah, they, the, the Israelites did not, not necessarily uh, like the Moabites They have an interesting past with them, let's say, a checkered past. And the Moabites have a very um, questionable origin. And so the fact that Ruth is a Moabite even puts a lot more emphasis on her and how she's responding to these situations. And it makes us appreciate her even more. And so that's a little bit of the the big picture background. But I want to talk, uh, before we move on to observation, I want to talk specifically about a few things that we come across in chapter three, because I liked, uh, Kelly, your response where it was just, how did you feel after reading that? Wow, right? There's a, you reread it and you kind of pick up on more details, you're like, what in the world is happening in this chapter? There's a lot of really bizarre stuff that we're like, I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to feel about this, Um, but if we know a little bit of the cultural background, it's going to help us when we go to interpret it, Okay. Um, it's not necessarily going to solve all of our problems, but it will definitely help. And so there's four things that I want to talk about um, briefly that will hopefully, when we actually go back into the text, make it a little bit easier to understand. And so for the first thing I want to talk about is uh, one of the main places that the story is taking place is this place called the threshing floor. Um, And so we've talked about how this culture was, uh, is the right word, an agrarian society where uh, they were farmers, right? They grew crops and they raised animals, and it was a subsistence living culture um, where they just tried to live day by day feeding uh, their families. But the threshing floor um, was a level outdoor area used for threshing sheaves of grain, and so these threshing floors might have been um, in an open area on top of a hill or a large rocky surface. And these were public spaces. So we, we're going to come across Boaz at a threshing floor, but that's not his own personal threshing floor. This is something that would be the, shared by the townspeople, and each person would have their own little section. So this is a very public, open space, the threshing floor. The second thing I want to talk about is Leverite marriage. Kind of a scary, intimidating-sounding thing. Um, This is actually kind of in line with what Abby talked about last week with this idea of a kinsman redeemer. This idea of redemption. Do you guys remember Abby talking about this idea of redemption? And so we're going to come across what's called Leverite marriage that is part of this redemption process in the ancient world. And this is what it was. It was the provision that a brother-in-law might marry his brother's widow, so kind of keep track of the relationship, in order to produce an heir that would preserve the family's line and secure their inheritance. And this is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 6, and this is what it says. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, so that's a very uh, bad situation to be in, the wife of the dead man, so this is Naomi, right? She has no husband and no sons, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that, is his, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So what's happening here is that this is a provision in the law to make sure that people's family line doesn't die out or their inheritance doesn't uh, leave the family. So this may sound a little bit bizarre to us, but this has nothing to do with... Um, the act of sex necessarily. This is just something that God required his people to do to make sure that people weren't left in a destitute situation, right? So then this son would take the place of that father. So this is what's happening in chapter three, and we're gonna see this in chapter four with Boaz. And that's why, that's why Naomi is going to say that he is our nearest redeemer, or there's a nearer redeemer. So this idea of redeemer, this is what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about this law in Deuteronomy. Um another thing I need to talk about that is slightly uncomfortable but uh we come across a euphemism in the text. Uh so we see a lot about Boaz's feet. Um I hate to break it to you but this is what that means. The Hebrew phrase is literally translated the place of his feet. Uh this is an expression uh it's a euphemism for the waist or genital area. So you guys know what a euphemism means. It's kind of saying something in a mild or indirect way. So in the Bible, we often come across this phrase like, they slept with their fathers, which means what? They didn't go to sleep, they died. But talking about death and people dying is a little crass maybe. So to make it a little bit more easier on the ears, you say he went to sleep with his fathers. Um, So just keep this in mind, and we're going to talk about this, okay? But keep this in mind in the text because it makes it even more uncomfortable. I think, at least. <laughs> we're all adults in here. Um, and then the the last thing I want to talk about is another figurative figure of speech that um, Ruth is going to mention in verse 9. And sh- it's this idea of spreading your wings. In verse 9 she says, spread your wings over your servant. And we saw the same expression, kind of, this spreading your wings in chapter 2. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But this is what the the... The imagery was in the ancient world. Spreading a garment or wings, those are the same, same thing, was a gesture symbolizing engagement for marriage. And I want to show you a verse in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. This is, this is Ezekiel speaking metaphorically of God and Israel. And this is what God says of Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So what we're this imagery that we're seeing, this language that Ruth is saying, is connected to the language of a marriage proposal. So those are the four things uh, in the text that um, we kind of come across. And hopefully this information will help bring the text a little bit to life And then when we get to the interpretation, remember this information when we go to try to answer some of the the interpretive questions. So the threshing floor, lever right marriage, Boaz's feet, and spreading your wings. Does anybody have any uh, questions or uh, comments about that? All right. (laughs) well when she says spread your wings it's not literally he doesn't literally have wings but she's saying figure she's saying literally to spread something and so we're going to talk about that yeah okay very good All right. so now what we're going to do is going to move to step number five which is observe which is where we're going to notice the details of the text to discover what the text says this is important to distinguish right now all we're trying to do is identify what the text is saying We do not want to try to figure out what it means. We're not moving into interpretation yet because we're we're not familiar enough with all of the material. And so this is where we're going to identify the key details of the text to then use for interpretation, right? So we're just observing the text. And so you're going to use your colored pencils uh, that's been provided at the tables, and in your text— you're going to choose a color for each observation that I'm going to give you and you're just going to color, underline, highlight, circle, however you want to do it in the text, the things that you see. So I'm going to give you five things to look for. Uh, yes, I might have the last one split up. But what you're going to do, everyone's going to do the answer to this question. So what you're going to look for is what is the setting of the story? So this is the place and the time. So anytime you come across a location or a time, pick a color and just color it that color. Uh, the second thing I want you to look for is who are the characters and are they described in any way? That's really important. So anytime a character is being described or somebody is saying something about them, you want to make a note of that because that's really important. They don't, biblical authors don't do that much. And so uh, when, you, when you see that, it's probably important uh, to the story. Then what I want you to do is I want you to try to identify what is the the main conflict in chapter 3. So what's the story of chapter 3 all about? And then do you think that it is resolved in chapter 3? So try to identify what is the main conflict that the chapter is all about, and is it resolved? And then I want to have... Oh, is there an easy way to do this? Let's do like one, two, three, and then this middle table 4. I want you guys to... Also observe any repeated words, phrases, or ideas. So you're going to look for setting characters and conflicts and repetitions. And then uh, this front table and these three side tables, I want you to identify the setting, the characters, the conflict, and not the repeated words, but contrasts. So who or what is being contrasted? Are there actions, thoughts, people being contrasted to one another? So those are what you four are going to observe, and then you over here, you guys over here, are going to do the repetition in the top three. Does everybody understand, or did I make that way too confusing? Okay. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're just going to give you guys some time, uh, individually with the text, and just try to find as much of this as possible. Um, If you can't find... Any repeated words you can't identify the conflict. No, no worries. We're going to come back and discuss it and we'll all learn together. So I'm going to give you guys about like ten minutes or so. So take your time, and then we'll come back together and discuss uh, what we found. I think he hasn't recorded. Uh, muted. I hope. Nice <laughs> job. Make it awkward. I'll thinking this We're all adults. Nice boy sleeping on the threshing floor. Why is he even there? We'll we, uh, Look at that. we'll talk about it, yeah. Because he's he, like his whole kingdom. Yeah. This is his land. You can have plenty of servants. Watch the threshing floor, right? Confident. Well, that's the assumption that he has a lot of people. Or I mean, he definitely has people. You can have somebody sleep in a barn. Yeah. The well. Is it a barn? Is it outside? <laughs> no, it's an outside area. It's an open outside area that there would be room. multiple piles for different people. And so they would just have people that would sleep out there to make sure nobody stole it. So he's just... Hanging out, having a good time, getting married and then right. he's one of those people that's oh, watching okay. his grain. <laughs> you know, his heart is his heart is merry, so maybe he just didn't want to go home. Maybe he just figured that was a good spot. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's scary, no. yeah, I know. It's like, no, please. Uh, funny story for those of you who are watching online. After I was done, my microphone was not muted, so if you heard anything, it was all in regards to Ruth. It's not a great chapter to uh, not have your microphone muted as you're making small talk in the back, but I promise you, it was about Ruth, um, so that's why I was up here, like shaking my head, laughing) <laughs> of all nights. (laughs) It's in the text, I promise. Okay, Uh, so uh, let's uh, kind of work our way through some of these observations. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of open it up to uh, you guys to kind of share. If you guys can do me a huge favor before we do this, can you raise your hand just so then I can like make sure I let multiple people respond if they want. And then as you're Pointing out an observation, just tell us what verse it's in. So then that way everybody can really easily follow along, especially those people who are online um, or watching it later. It just really helps us all be able to track. Um, Cool? Okay, so let's start off with the first observation. Everybody was going to look for the setting, including the place and the time. So uh, somebody uh, want to tell me where the story is taking place. Where does the, the main part of the story take place? What is it all centered around? The threshing floor. Yeah, so we see in verse 3 um, and then again in verse 14 and verse 6. Yeah, so four different times it's mentioned the threshing floor. So that's where the story is taking place. Now, when does the story take place? Yeah, so specifically, what time at night? In verse 8, at midnight. After he has eaten and drunk, and his heart is merry. So, um, interesting. And all of those details in the story are important, right? Because you, when you're reading this, it's supposed to really make you feel feelings. Like, you're supposed to be like, what in the world is happening? Like, this is kind of interesting. Like, at midnight you're doing this? Like, you couldn't have done this in the day, you know? Okay, Great. Uh, what about characters? Who are the main characters and do we see them described in any way? Who would like to share with us? What about this table right here? Okay, Ruth? I thought it was interesting when you described her as a woman. Okay, so what verse do you see that? I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Verse 11. 11, yeah, so. Um, we see Ruth is one of the main characters and Boaz describes her in verse 11 as a worthy woman. Not in this chapter, but do you guys remember have you heard that phrase before obviously not woman but that worthy and who was it talking about do you remember? yeah so Boaz in chapter two is described in the same way, which is a very um, specific unique way um, to describe somebody and it's not a very common um, it's not a very common term in the biblical uh, text, and so that's really important. yeah, okay, Ruth, a worthy woman. Uh, who else? I'm sorry. and who is the redeemer? So Boaz is described as a redeemer, so if you can see this. Um, in verse, um, in nine, yes, yeah, repeated quite frequently. Yeah. Do you see? Is there anybody else in the text that is referred to as a redeemer? Not specifically. In verse twelve, and now it is true that I, Boaz, am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So that's going to—we're going to come across it in chapter 4. So although it's not a specific person, there's still another Redeemer that's nearer than Boaz. And so that's a part of the, the, the storyline. So yeah, really good. Anything else about Boaz that we see in the text? Uh, who else is in the text? Naomi. And how is Naomi described? Yeah, as, as Ruth's mother-in-law. And then um, she describes Ruth as my daughter, right, in verse 1. Um, Are there any other people mentioned in the text? Yeah, in verse 10, young men, Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Yeah, really good. So although there are, you know, we find Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, those are like main central characters, it's still important to identify any other people that we come across in the text. Okay, really good. All right, what about the conflict? Again, this one's kind of a little bit hard. You're kind of like, I'm not right, quite sure. But what about the conflict? Are you guys, were you able to identify what that is? Yeah, Joseph. Yeah, so the the conflict has to do with Naomi and Ruth needing to find someone to redeem them, and then we see the development of the conflict where Boaz, Naomi's like, hey, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Unfortunately, he's not the nearest, and the chapter ends, we don't have any resolution, right? There's no resolution at the end of chapter 3, so we're going to have to wait till next week to finally see how it comes to its resolution. Yeah, really good. If you guys were here, um, one thing that I I kind of stole from um, Tim Acott of the Bible Project is he describes things like happy face, sad face. Um, as far as the first five verses, when uh, Naomi instructs Ruth, like how if you were to describe that in a, an emoji, what would your emoji be? Questionable. Questionable, yeah. So I put a little like a, a frowny face slash like slant face, like ah. Uh, I, that's interesting, yeah, like questionable. Yeah, so then what happens kind of later on in the story, in verse, kind of in that middle section, how do you feel about that middle section? Not much better, but then kind of towards the end, it kind of, you're kind of like, yeah, a little bit hopeful, it's kind of, and then how does it end? Joseph kind of pointed it out. The last paragraph, how do you feel? Yeah, so do you feel like there's tension there, right? And so that's part of, Part of historical narrative is feeling that tension. And so it ends with that tension. You're supposed to be like, right? Like, what does happen, right? We're going to find out in the morning. It's like Christmas morning. You got to wait till the next morning, and we're, you have to wait till next week. So don't look ahead if you haven't. I was kidding. Is it only morning or mind? It's only morning. <laughs> 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 Kelly's getting interpretive there. Not yet. All right, so this side of the room, you were supposed to also observe repetition. So did you guys find anything yes. that were repeated? Kelly, what was one thing that you found repeated? Uh, definitely thresh, threshing floor. Yeah, so we saw threshing floor. We kind of already talked about that a little bit. It's repeated four times. Maybe one other thing? Redeemer. Okay, Redeemer. Did you notice how many times that was repeated? Yeah, I think it's five or six times in the text the word redeemer is being repeated. And so again, in historical narrative, repetition is going to be a really uh, important indicator as to what the main idea of what's happening. So if you see a word like that being repeated six times in this short chapter, you're going to want to identify that because it's going to be important. Um, Anybody else find anything that was repeated over on this side of the room? Okay, so Jackson pointed, pointed out, like, this trajectory of down, which is something I noticed. Lay down, down at his feet. There's this re- repetition of down is repeated seven times. And then at the very end in chapter, uh, verse 14, it says, uh, she arose. And we're probably not going to get into that, but if you guys were here with Jonah, you remember in Jonah chapter 1 of how his trajectory was down, down, down. Um, and so I think there's something interesting there. So, I like that you you kind of observe that uh we don't have time to get really get into that, but that's a really great observation uh any other repetitions oh okay. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. In, uh, for instance, in verse 5, uh, Ruth, in response to Naomi's instructions, she, said, she replied, all that you say I will do, like will do, right? You kind of mentioned that. Yeah, that's really good. Alrighty, great job with the repetition. What about contrast, this side of the room? Did you guys notice any uh, words, phrases, people, ideas being contrasted to one another? anything and where where are you talking what are you talking about and that's being contrasted with what Well, he's not quite sure who she is because it's really dark outside and he doesn't know why she's there. Correct. It's a good observation, but it's not necessarily, a, I wouldn't observe it as a contrast, uh, but it's a great question that you can observe, but we'll, we'll probably get back to that. Um, okay, yeah, so the story takes place at, during the night and then it's contrasted to then the last paragraph is now taking place in the morning, yeah. So when we're observing the text, we're just looking at all of the information, and we don't know whether or not something is going to be really important, but the more you understand what's happening in the story, the more it's going to inform you in the interpretation part. But yeah, that's a great, definitely a contrast. Anything else? Okay, yeah, so that's a great contrast in verse Um <clears throat> In verse nine and uh, 7, 8, and 9, she uncovers his feet and then she says in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant. So there's a contrast between an uncovering and a covering. Yeah, really good. Any other uh, contrast? What about the contrast? We mentioned it a little bit with the young men. Who's being contrasted with the young men? Yeah, Boaz. Which means Boaz is what? An older man. Um, older could be, most likely he's probably in his 40s. Um, which in that time, people didn't live that long, right? Um, unless you're like Abraham or something. But generally speaking, uh, people didn't live to be that long. So he's, he's not like an old, old person, but he's older, right? So that's, it. that's actually a really interesting part of the story. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm done. That's it. Yeah, so I actually like that observation you made. In the beginning, Naomi's talking about this idea of rest. Um, and then at the end, she kind of mentions that this man will not rest. And so there's kind of almost like a, it's like a sandwich between the beginning part talking about rest and it ends with rest, which that's an important observation to make. That's a, that's a really interesting part of the story. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's definitely a, a really great detail. And it's an intentional detail too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So does that young men contrast mean Boaz's young men that she was um, kind of following behind, or other young men in different fields? Um, The text, at least in chapter three, doesn't tell us, so I'm not sure one way or the other. Um, It could potentially be his own workers in his field, or it could be other men in the town, right, in Bethlehem. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to come across, so is it, is it possible to have another kinsman in a different field? So the, he mentions in the text, right, Boaz says there's a, a kinsman that's nearer than I, but we haven't been introduced to him in the story yet. We, we don't know of this character. And then all of a sudden, we're getting our hopes and expectations built for Boaz, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's somebody actually that is more suited legally than I. We don't know who this character is, um, it's obviously a relative of Boaz, it's a relative of Naomi's, but we don't know who that person is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely a, um, it's kind of like a play on words, right? So in one way we saw in chapter one that Naomi says, I went away full during a time of famine, and then she came back empty during harvest time. But what's she talking about? She's talking about her family, right? Because her husband and both of her sons she left with, and she's now coming back with nothing. So there's definitely a play on words there that I, I, you picked up on, right? This idea of what is full and what is empty. There's like a physical fullness and a physical emptiness, and then a more so, bigger picture, family fullness and family emptiness. So yeah, really great observation. Great job. Yes? One is the place. It says that in the threshing floor, obviously lives in a farm. And then at the end, Ruth went, she went into the city. So from farm to the city. Yeah, so the threshing floor would be a public space, probably out in the middle of the fields that all the farmers would use. So she's definitely outside of Bethlehem, which Bethlehem is a tiny, tiny little town. But yeah, it says city, but it's a tiny little town, yeah. Yeah, really good. All right, that's it for the observation part. And so we're going to move into the interpretation. Uh, Great job. And also to you guys, just to encourage you that technically everything in the text is an observation. So everything that you see, you can take note of. Um, The only reason why we choose these is because these are going to be the the ones that you find the most, that are probably going to be the most important when reading historical narrative for our time's sake, right? Because we don't want to be here all night long. Um, But you guys did a great job. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to move into step number six, which is interpretation. So this is when we're going to use all of the information that we just discussed in the text to explain what the text means. This is when we're getting into interpretation. Now, It's really important that we understand in this step we are asking the question, what did it mean not for me, not to me, but to the author, the author's original readers, or the characters, the people in the story? We only ask the question, what does this mean to me in application, which is step number seven. So that's a really important thing when we study the Bible, is to not immediately jump to our personal application, because otherwise we're going to come up with some kind of Uh, interesting uh, interpretations. And so this step number six is author, the original readers of the book of Ruth, and the characters in the story. And we're going to talk specifically and primarily tonight about the characters in the story, just because there's a lot happening in here. Uh, So my first question for you guys is uh, this. Why does Naomi give these instructions in verses one through five to Ruth now? So why at this point in the story, we're in chapter 3, it's been, remember if you were here last week, it's been six weeks around since they've been back. So why after six weeks is she now having Ruth do this? Whatever this is, why is she instructing Ruth now? Does that question make sense? So what we're going to do is I'm just going to have you guys talk with the person next to you. And you're just going to kind of share some thoughts and ideas based off of the information in the text. And then I'll give you a minute and we'll come back together and discuss it as a class. Does that make sense? All right, so take a few minutes, uh, share your thoughts, and then I'll call you back. I think it says the time, it's the end of the harvest. And so that's really important. So I want to mention that if you, if you weren't picking up on that clue, it's the end of the harvest, right? That's why they're threshing the grain. So that might help in your interpretation. you guys before we move on to the second question. I know I could hear some of the conversation. I know you guys have come up with some great stuff. So does anybody have any, any thoughts? Again, the question was, why does Naomi give these instructions to Ruth now? It's chapter three. It's been six weeks since they've been back. It's the end of the harvest season. So why now? What did you guys think? Oh interesting. So in Sumatra after harvest was wedding season. That's interesting. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good point. So he, Uncle Les mentioned that it's the end of the harvest and you pointed back to the problem of the story, which is Naomi needs to be redeemed. So although she's had provision over the past six weeks with harvest, which has been great, what the, the actual problem of the story, the whole plot in the story has not been resolved yet. And now it's like desperation time almost right like it's been six weeks and we're gonna go back to the literally the way it was when we came here we're gonna be in big trouble so we got to do something to secure the long-term solution yeah really good i think that's right on any other yeah pastor is So I think, that, I think that what I would say off of that is that I think what we can learn from the story is that in chapter 2, we see that Boaz is called a worthy man. And so I think, they, I think Naomi knows that, of course, she says he's a redeemer. My assumption would be that she would know that there might be other people that are her relatives. That's my assumption. It doesn't say necessarily I think the reason maybe she's wanting Ruth to go for Boaz is because he's a worthy man. His, he's a man of integrity that has been demonstrated over the past six weeks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Any other uh, final thoughts with this question? Anything to add? Or anything to object to? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you pointed out that it's a really great time to be alive, right? So it's harvest time. He's got a big old stack of grain, and him and his guys are celebrating the harvest, right? And he's, he ate, and he drank, and his heart was merry. Those are important details in the text, right? And so you're like, maybe he was just in a good mood, and Naomi knew that, so maybe this was a great time. Yeah, maybe. I like that little thought there. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, really good. So just to, to conclude, all of those ideas I really liked, um, and I want to kind of just summarize it to what I think is the, the main thing that's going on. I think Uncle Les, you pointed this out, is that what's happening here is that Naomi is identifying that the crisis has not been resolved, and they are about to experience a really difficult time if they don't come to a long-term solution. And for whatever reason... They're being put in the situation that for us as reading it, we're like, this is weird, but Naomi knows what she's doing and she's acting in the way that she thinks is best to secure that long-term solution, right? Yeah, really good. Okay, great job. Uh, let's move on to the, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah. so we talked about that a little bit last week, is that Boaz is being contrasted as this, as this man of integrity, this man of, uh, he's described as a worthy man, a man of nobility, and following faithfully the law, right? And then he con- he's contrasted like, hey, you've got to stick around in my field because I don't know what's going to happen in those other fields, which isn't surprising to us knowing the time period of the judges, right? The time period of the judges is a really bad time. So most people are not being faithful to the Lord, but Boaz is. And I think Naomi and Ruth recognize that. And that's why they're like, Boaz, he's the man. Yeah, yeah, really good. Great job, you guys. Those are awesome thoughts. All right, question number two. And this is kind of like getting to the heart of the actual problem in chapter three. So why does Ruth ask Boaz to spread your wings over your servant? What is she asking him to do? So you're going to have to use all of the details of the text to try to think through this. Remember the historical background, but think about the situation right now. Naomi gives her all these instructions. You got to dress up really nice, and then you got to wait till Boaz is in a good mood and he's asleep, and then you got to do, you got to like uncover him, and then you got to, you know, make your move. And she's like, okay, I'll do all that. What is she actually asking? What is happening in the text? So I want you to talk about that for a minute because there's a, few different, there's a few different ideas that maybe you might be thinking of, but I think there's probably one that's probably the more accurate one. So what's happening in the text? So talk about it. What is Ruth asking when she says, cover me uh, with your, spread your wings over your servant? I know you guys had, we're having some good conversations, so I want to hear from you guys. Um, it's always like the most fun part of the night is learning from you all. So again, the question was why does Ruth ask Boaz to spread your wings over your servant, right? That's the line from verse 9. What is she asking him to do? So what is what's happening at midnight at the threshing floor with Boaz? What is happening in this story? Because it's 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 weird. I want to hear from you guys. What were some of your thoughts? Yeah. Naomi yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like how you pointed it out for sure. I like what you said when you mentioned all of the instructions that Naomi gives Ruth. So this is, this is Naomi's like little, I don't want to call it a scheme because that sounds kind of like negative, but this is, this is Naomi's idea. And then Ruth, look at what she says in verse 5, all that you say I will do. I want you to put yourself in Ruth's mind. Would you not be scared out of your mind? This is absolutely terrifying. Dress yourself up, go out at night where all the men are after they've had their, they've been working, they've eaten, they've obviously drank a little bit of wine, and they're just chilling. In the ancient world, this is like such an, a vulnerable position for Ruth. And I just love what she says All that you ask, I will do. Like, Ruth is just, she's the best like amazing. Uh okay. Yeah, really great thought. What else? Yeah. Okay, so I like the connection he made with the imagery that we'll see a little bit in Psalms, too. In Psalms, in Psalms 91, verse 4, it says, Under his wings you will find refuge, which I love. So there's definitely—and you guys remember chapter 2. What did Boaz say? If you guys have uh, turned to—I think it's in chapter 2, verse 12. What does it say—what does Boaz say? Chapter 2, verse 12? Is that right, or is it chapter 1, verse 12? Chapter 2, what does it say? I'm looking for the one, the verse, sorry, I don't have it on my just have chapter three here. Where's the verse that talks about the wings? It's verse 12, so read the rest of it. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Yeah, so there's a connection being made between—we talked about this—with the actions of Boaz being as if he's acting in the place of God on behalf of Naomi, right? You've come to, to seek refuge from Yahweh, and then here Boaz is going to—he's going to act on behalf of Yahweh. He's going to be the one that's wings covered, right? Okay, but the question that I want to go back to is, what is happening? What is she, what is she asking? What is she doing here? Because you have kind of two choices. I just want to pose the two choices. You either have one where you read the instructions uh, from Naomi and you're like, Naomi wants her to go sleep with Boaz. So you have that. Or what's the second option based off of the background information? What might else other be happening? right? Because she says laying at his feet, uncovered his feet, we're talking about she's laying right next to him and uncovering him. I'm not saying she's stripping him uh, naked, but she's uncovering him, whether it's an outer garment or something like that. But what is she asking? What is she trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I think that she's, asked, she's proposing, she is asking Boaz to redeem her, right? That's what I think is happening. There's a lot of ambiguity in the text. There's a lot of interesting details in the text. But I think in light of the background information, that's actually what Ruth is doing here. Yeah, Zach. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so I want to put a, a question that we should be thinking about is if Boaz is a redeemer and he knows the plight of Naomi and Ruth for the past six weeks, why has he not taken the initiative? Why, does, why do Naomi and Ruth have to be in such a desperate situation to go to this great of length to accomplish what is legally according to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five theirs to do. Yeah. Oh, can to go very badly. This could go very badly for Ruth. Yeah, Boaz could Boaz could very easily take advantage of her or somebody else that's or in a pile of grain. A Moabite, right? She is a Moabite. In a a yeah, this the, a woman of, a woman in this time period proposing is not normal. <laughs> So the situation that you should be thinking of is this is such a desperate situation that Naomi's kind of like, you got to do whatever you have to do to secure our redemption. I don't think Naomi is like, I want you to go sleep with him and trick him. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that in light of the details, uncovering him and then asking to be covered, that it's like, I want you to redeem me. And this is a weird way to ask but it's not our culture. It's 3,000 years ago. Um, me getting down on my knee to ask my wife to marry me, for them, that would probably be weird. So it's just that, it's that that's what I think is happening in the text. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, yeah. So it's a sign of service, maybe, something like that. Um, what, I want, what I want to point back—yeah, Zach— The point of being redeemed is a son, not a marriage. The marriage is the vehicle for the son, which is the point. So that's why I said when I made the announcement about Ruth is that it's not a love story. Sorry, it's not. It's not about the actual marriage. It's about the, the byproduct of the marriage, which is the son. The son is the person that redeems the family. So if she was going to sleep with him and hopefully ended up getting pregnant, then that would be mission accomplished in one sense. But I want, what is, I want to point to the text of what does Boaz, how does Boaz respond to Ruth? After being startled and being like, what in the world? Because we're talking about pitch black. Yeah. He's, he's drunk a little wine. It doesn't say he's drunk or anything like that, but his heart is Mary. what is? How does he respond to her? What does he say about Ruth? Sorry, Joseph, do you want to say something? Yeah, so in this story, Naomi and Ruth are forcing Boaz's hand, right? It's like, you may, he may have been, and he says it like, you could have gone after other people. So maybe he just assumed you were going to, Ruth, you got options. I know you're Moabite, but everyone knows you're a worthy woman. You have options with these young men. So maybe he was just sitting back being like, why would she go with a guy like me? Although we know Boaz obviously is a worthy man. So that's why they pick him. So maybe that's why he didn't take the initiative. But here... Naomi and Ruth are taking the initiative to force his hand, and then that's the tension that we'll see later on. It's like, oh, maybe it's not Boaz, maybe it's this other guy that remains unnamed. Um, what I want to point out too, really quickly, uh, before we move on to our last question, this one's so good though, is he, what? How does he describe her in verse eleven? He describes her as a worthy woman. Do you think, Boaz, if Ruth was trying to seduce him and sleep with him, do you think that would be his response? Right? We talked about that idea of like a, being a worthy person. That's a very—that word is used very infrequently. And it's used in the book of Proverbs in chapter 31 to describe this amazing, amazing woman. Proverbs 31 woman. That's the same word that it's used to describe I don't I don't know if Boaz would have described her in that way at that time with that word if that was what was happening. That's again that's an interpretation. yeah 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 so that's why it's important to like be able to see the whole story and gather all of this information because on first read you're like Naomi what are you doing and then you kind of read it and you're like what are you doing and then you kind of keep reading and you're like, oh, is that what you're doing? Or is that what you're doing? And then you come to a conclusion. And there are some people that say, no, like we, we think that Naomi was literally asking her to go sleep with him. That's not necessarily my interpretation. I, I, I prefer the interpretation uh, that we've discussed about the marriage proposal. But I want to go back to, again, this is something that was legally the right of Naomi and Ruth. And it's the unfortunate situation in that time period that they were in such desperate situation that there was nobody that would stand up for them. So they had to act. And they had to put themselves in this vulnerable situation because nobody was stepping up to the plate. And then when Boaz gets the little nod, he then steps up to the plate. So I, I don't think the text is telling us Boaz was in the, in the wrong here at all. Um, but Naomi and Ruth were doing literally the only thing they could do in that time. They had no ability to go to the town and to, you know, do whatever. Like, this was the only thing they could do. And it's unfortunate that it ended up in this situation, right? <clears throat> Did you want to add something, Abby? Yeah. That's a great question. So was this like Naomi's instructions? Was that like Ruth's like, yeah, I know what you're asking me to do. That's, that's common. Off the top of my head, I don't know. So I'm not going to say one way or the other. That's a great question though. Something to look up later on. Um, would Ruth know exactly what Naomi was asking her to do? Is this like a common cultural practice of proposing? Um, I'm not sure. Great observation though. Um, Oh, this is such a good interpretation. This is such a great discussion. Um one th- yeah. No go ahead. I was gonna say I if was curious the normal process like kind of a redemption process I know they're that. that normal process We'll see a little bit of that in chapter four. So I think in chapter four, you'll see how the process plays out, especially between Boaz and this other person. Yeah, I think in chapter four, we'll be able to see a little bit more of like how it actually plays out culturally. Um, okay, I want to ask one more question. I know we're kind of running out of time, but really quickly, according to the text, the text never indicates that what Naomi and Ruth did was wrong. If anything, the text indicates that they did the right thing, right? Ruth, you are a worthy person. I also want to point out there's an interesting story because in our, sometimes our frame of reference, our understanding, we import our morality into the text. If you remember, there's a weird story in Genesis, chapter 38, where uh, there is one, uh, a lady named Tamar. Tamar? Yeah, Tamar. And she seduces a man named Judah and dresses up like a prostitute and becomes pregnant I'm not saying this is what was happening, but in that story, if you read that story, in our modern understanding, we would say that is really messed up. What she did was wrong. But it's a similar situation because Tamar was being withheld by Judah, the thing that legally belonged to her. And she did the only thing she could do in that time. And Judah says, you are more righteous than I, which kind of blows my mind. So, I want to end this question, or this question, I know there's so much there, just saying that from the text, it doesn't tell us that they did anything wrong. If anything, it's on the contrary. And there's a similar story in Genesis that although it's bizarre to us, we see that what Tamar did was considered to be righteous in the eyes of Judah because legally it was hers to do. It's weird, but I'm sorry. Last question. I know, Zach, you're like, I got to say, we need to have like an after hours like discussion. Last question is this. Why does Boaz describe Ruth's action as this last kindness? What was the first kindness, and how is this act greater than the first? So just take like one minute, discuss. So he says, this last kindness is greater than the first. What is the first kindness he's referring to, and how is this greater than that? How is this an act of kindness? What Ruth did, how is that an act of kindness? So talk about it. Actually, yeah, talk about it for just a minute. I know it's 8.30, if you have to leave, you can leave, Um, but I want to talk about this last question, then we have a few application things to talk about. Okay, so can somebody from your tables, like, what was the first kindness? What do you think he was referring to? What is the first act of kindness that Boaz is referring to? Yeah. Yeah, so chapter one, Naomi's like, go home, man not man, but go home, Ruth. Like, I got nothing for you. You, All of your future lies at home. And she says, no, 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 I'm going with you. And then Boaz says that this is like a story that's been told. Like, you are a worthy woman because of what you did for Naomi. That's definitely what I think is the first act of kindness, which is a huge deal, right? Like, you're giving up your entire future for, according to Naomi, no future. So then the next question is, how is this act greater than the first? And how is this actually an act of kindness? He's saying what Ruth did is an act of kindness. How is that an act of kindness? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like that thought. Do you have anything to say about who is the ki- like what, how is this kind, of what, what Ruth is doing, how is that kind? And who is the kindness towards? Naomi, why is it towards Naomi? Okay, so who is the marriage about? It's about Naomi. So the act of kindness, the first kindness was Ruth giving up everything in order to benefit Naomi. In the same way, although Boaz is an amazing man, She's doing this for Naomi because it's through Boaz, his, her redeemer, that she can actually be redeemed, right? So this act of kindness is, on, is for the benefit of Naomi. And she goes through all of this really kind of scary stuff in, for Naomi. All that you say, I will do, it's for you. She will benefit from it, but it's ultimately for the benefit of Naomi. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, so Ruth could have married anybody. And if she would have married a younger man, or if she would have gone home and married a Moabite, that would not have benefited Naomi at all. That would have been of absolutely no benefit because her family line would have not have been redeemed. It's only because it's Boaz that it's, it's the, at the benefit of Naomi. So that's why Boaz says, hey, you could have gone after other people. That's why this is such a, an act of kindness. And of course, we're kind of set up for like, well, Boaz is amazing, right? But maybe he's a little bit older. I don't know. Maybe there wasn't a much, as much future with him as maybe a younger man or a more wealthy man or something like that. So Ruth is, is putting aside her maybe preference for Naomi's preference. And it ultimately benefits uh, Naomi. Yeah. Yes. Yes. yeah so she so she they left they lived in moab for 10 years her sons were old enough to be married so they had to have been at least like young you know 15 16 17 ish so maybe her sons i don't know how abby you say this all the time in our conversations how old is naomi yeah. Yeah. So she's probably about the same age as Boaz and probably 40s, 50s. So no. could well, she have gotten No. Well, she kind of can't have kids because she's too old, kind of. The, the, it, yeah, she kind of does mention in the beginning, like, I could, kind of, but things aren't very hopeful and like, It's not a guarantee. Plus, in that time and culture, conception was really hard. Having kids that would actually live through infancy was really hard. She was kind of old and past her prime years of childbirth. So things weren't looking too good with her. So Ruth was pretty much her only hope to some degree. Yeah. Okay. You guys are amazing. Such great discussion. We cannot leave without thinking about application because that's the goal. The goal of the text, the goal of our study is application. So that's step number seven. And so what I've done is I, this week what I wanted to do is I wanted to just think about the character and the actions of Ruth. And so what I did is I kind of just highlighted in really cheesy language. I didn't quite do like the super cheesy like pastor, every word is the same, Um, but they're kind of cheesy. Not that Pastor Riz does that. Um, Just some pastors, just some pastors do do that. Um, And so, so then, and then I have a question. Okay, so in the first few verses, what I observed is that Ruth demonstrates radical trust. Naomi gives her all of these instructions, and she says, all that you say, I will do. When I read that, I'm like, Ruth's got to be scared. She's got to be nervous, and she just says, all that you say, I will do. I think she demonstrates a radical trust. So my question is, in what area in my life, what area in your life, is God calling me or has called me to radically trust in him? Think about a situation where you're like, the situation doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Is there a situation that God is asking you to radically trust in him? The second thing I kind of notice in this is that Ruth demonstrates amazing boldness, right? She's the one who goes and proposes in the middle of the night. That's pretty bold in that time and culture. She demonstrates amazing boldness. And so the question that I came up with is, is God calling me to be more bold on behalf of others, right? Because her boldness is on behalf of Naomi. So is there area, is there a person in your life that you're like, I need to step up to the plate on behalf of this person or this group of people. Is God calling me to be more bold on behalf of other people, And then the last thing that I noticed was Ruth demonstrates unprecedented faithfulness. You see how cheesy it is? Radical, amazing, unprecedented. But I think that's what Ruth demonstrates. I think those are good. What are those called? Adjectives? Is that what it's called? Sorry, I don't know. Uh, So she demonstrates unprecedented, unprecedented faithfulness, right? She's a worthy woman. She's been faithful since day one to Naomi, even at her own expense, even at the cost of her own uh, future. So how can I be more faithful to God and the people in my life, right? Ruth is demonstrating faithfulness. How can I be more faithful? What area of my life is God calling me to be more faithful to himself or people that he has brought into my life? And so those are just a few questions to kind of maybe think about and to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, based off of our study of Ruth chapter 3, we see all of this amazing stuff that Ruth is demonstrating And we don't want to just be like, wow, good for Ruth. We want to know how God is actually asking us to respond. And again, just in closing, the book of Ruth is such an amazing story because it's set in contrast to the dark, terrible period of the Judges where everybody around them, the people of God, the nation of Israel, are doing what is right in their own eyes. Bad, bad things. And we have a story of three really faithful people who are just simply obeying the law. That's all they're doing. They're not asking God to give them a sign out of the sky. They're not, in, like, they're not waiting for you know, the Holy Spirit to prompt them. They're just doing what they know they should do. They're being faithful to what God has given them. And they're not worried about what's happening around them. They're not worried about, hey, I'll, I'll be faithful once everybody else figures it out. And I think this is great for us because I think if you just observe the world around us, you can get a little bit depressed. You can get a little bit sad and think, well, there is no hope. But that's, that's not what God is asking his people to do. He's asking us to be faithful with what he's put in front of us. And the great thing about this story is that God's going to use this family to bring about Jesus, right? So this, this story of three faithful people is our story that eventually will be something that God will use to redeem all of humanity. And so hopefully that's encouraging for us. It's really encouraging for me. Just be like, God... How can I be faithful with what you put in front of me? And that's all I need to worry about right now. My job isn't to save the world. That's your job. I'm just called to be faithful with what you put in front of me. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the book of Ruth that you have um, preserved for us today. God, and I thank you that although the story took place thousands of years ago, it can be so relevant for us today. Thank you for, for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's example that we can see God and stand in awe, but know that we, we are also called to, to be your hands and your feet in the world around us, God, to, to step up for those that are vulnerable in, in the world around us, God. And I just pray that your spirit would speak to us as we leave this room, as we, as we meditate on this chapter this week, God, and that you would show us Uh, the appropriate way that we should uh, respond individually and corporately as your body. And we just praise you and thank you uh, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys so much for sticking around. (laughs) Come back next week because it's the end of the story. It's what it's all about. Also, come on Sunday.